and welcome back to another episode of the Beyond the Fence podcast and a really special episode for you all today. I have the extreme pleasure of being joined by former University of Miami standout, current Sydney King sharpshooter, DJ Vasilievich. Man, how are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. Anytime, anytime. What are you up to so far? I think you're in Miami at the moment. Yeah, I've been here since the end of April, so just hanging out with like my girlfriend and just working out every day, you know, going to the gym and, you know, preparing for, you know, what lies next for me. Because, yeah, you, I think last year you did NBL 1 for Diamond Valley. This year just kind of taking a bit of a break from all the pro circuit. Um, yeah, last year I played because we finished so late. You know, I think we finished like mid-May with the NBL, so I just continued playing along and kind of kept my summer summer league body in shape. But this year I wanted to, you know, try something different, come here, spend time with my missus and, uh, you know, train with my trainer here in Miami. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to prepare. I'm preparing the best of my ability to see where my next journey kind of takes me. Yeah, obviously you got all the connections in Miami. Hurricane standout, second, I think second all time, three-pointers made. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah so I use, the, I use the whole facility. Uh, the coach loves to have his alumni back, so that's kind of, you know, the great thing about it. You see so many guys, you know, before I was there, during my time there, and then now you get to look at the guys who are there now, you know, you know, they made a final four last year, so it's kind of, you know, cool just to connect with everyone again. Any danger of getting overtaken in the top two? You say what's all right? Any danger of getting overtaken in the top two three-pointers? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. You know, me, <laughs> Jack McClinton's number one, and obviously I'm number two. So I think they got to make a lot, a lot of threes. You know, a guy has to come in and play well from the jump to, in order to kind of catch up to us. But also, obviously, you I've seen some snaps. You've been hanging out at the finals. Obviously, you got some boys on the Nuggets, and obviously your, your fake hometown Miami Heat. So it kind of worked out really well for you. But how, what was that experience like? Yeah, I think I think I was rooting for Miami the whole time until I realized like if the Denver Nuggets and Miami play in the finals, I'm gonna have to root for Denver, even though my girlfriend <laughs> goes to Miami and obviously being in Miami. But no, it was cool. Like obviously Jack White and Bruce Brown kinda hooked me and my girlfriend up to go to game three and four. We got to stay backstage, you know, after the game and you know, meet Nikola Jokic, met his brothers, kind of met like the whole family side of things. And then Jamal Murray spent some time with us, you know, last uh, preseason with the Kings, kind of just came in, played pickup a few times. And he's a great dude. I've known him since 2014 when I played him in a world championship. So I think there's a lot of connection there with the Nuggets. So I'm actually glad they won. And yeah, you always got to support your people from day one. And, you know, Bruce and Jack White are those people. Just on Bruce for a moment. Um, Playing with him in college and then watching his journey go through, obviously when he was drafted to the Pistons, he was kind of like no one really knew what he was. He was a guard, really athletic, could defend. Not sure how he's going to play on the ball. To see his development to what he's become now, it's got to be really rewarding as a mate, but also just as a Miami product. I think he's always had that in him. Uh, I think we all witnessed it firsthand in 2017, 2018 when he played for Miami. You know, he playing that, you know, point guard position is his really, his true position, being able to, you know, dribble the ball. And now he's more consistent with the three-point shots so people kind of take it seriously. And I think Detroit under undervalued him at times. Um, Brooklyn played him in a, as a, a five-man, which is kind of not his position at all. So it's hard for him to kind of flourish. And I've heard rumors that a couple of those players didn't want him back. And yeah, he took a chance on himself, signed a deal with Denver and, He's, a, he's an NBA champion, and I think he'll opt out of his contract and resign for a bigger deal with Denver. So it's a much you know deserved kind of time for Bruce. He's going to get paid. Yeah, I, I throughout the whole finals, there was that whole reporting of um he waited, I think, a week, and the phone was running dry, and no one was calling him. And then Malone calls him up, and he just goes, why is no one signing you? And Bruce just goes, well, coach, no one knows what to do with me. Like, point guard in Detroit, center in Brooklyn, 
I think we saw the best of both worlds there in Denver. Yeah, I mean, he killed it, especially that game four, and I was lucky enough to see it live. So, yeah, I'm just proud of him, and yeah, he's got a long, long career in the NBA to go. He's going to get paid. Let's wind it back a bit. So, born in Canada, lived mm-hmm. there for the first few years before coming to Australia. Your dad, I believe, is a handball, a handball player from Serbia. Yeah. How do you get into basketball with all those influences? Was it from a young age, your dad always loved basketball or just was it since you moved to Australia or was it a Canada thing that kind of came with you? Uh, it was mostly, I think the professional side of things, it comes from my dad, um, but the basketball side comes from my sister. You know, when I moved to Australia, I had no interest in basketball, never played it. I was mostly just, just the local Aussie sports. You play cricket, you play AFL. I always wanted to play AFL growing up. Um, but my parents said no because it's too dangerous. Obviously, footy's a lot softer now than it was back then. You know, people getting concussions, but keep playing on. You know, they can get tackled, and it's not you know getting reported. You know, every you know few often. So, yeah, my sister started at a young age, around six. I was playing kind of soccer and AFL at the time just for fun. And yeah, once I moved to her school, I decided to give that a, a go, and yeah, it ended up turning into a great profession for me. Yeah, I can relate. I wanted to play cricket, but mum didn't want to sit around all day in the field. And then I wanted to play rugby league because I'm from Sydney um, because my dad played rugby league. And then mum's like, you are so skinny, you'll get snapped in half. So she let me play a couple of school games, but I think I retired from rugby league when I was about 12. So yeah, straight into basketball and it's a great sport. And obviously the last few years with Australia's increasing influence in the NBA, you see more and more kids just get that thirst for the sport you see like just down there's a local park behind me every saturday sunday the the park's full of kids and it's got to be really cool to see the growth in the sport over the last 10 15 years in the country yeah 100 percent. obviously you know our national teams just won you know the bronze medal a few years ago at the olympics so i think australian basketball's on the rise i think i think new south wales has a, a big jump to do getting more venues and you know getting the courts available for kids and you're not charging them so high just to come in and shoot. Like, there's a big difference between Melbourne and Sydney. And, you know, obviously I play for Sydney, so I'm not trying to be biased or anything. And obviously I'm from Melbourne, but Melbourne just like, it's got so many available courts. Everywhere you go, there's a court, kids are playing. But Sydney, like, I think last two years, the Kings have done a tremendous job putting the basketball side of things on the map. And, you know, as you said, people are outside playing, you know, they want to hoop, they do all this and that. So it's good to see kind of, Basketball just keeps growing and growing, especially in Sydney. Yeah, I, I can just remember when I was living in Sydney before I moved down to Tassie, just trying to even rocking up to my local or going to like the Parramatta Stadium and it's like just 15, 20 bucks just to get in and like, oh, pay it because I love to hoop. But yeah, it's really about lowering those overheads, just getting kids in. But I think there's a lot more outdoor courts now and I think there's a lot more of that just mate culture and getting out there and playing. It's really good to see. Um, obviously, I don't know what it's like about Melbourne, but I think when you see half the NBA is from Melbourne at this point and it's just like Melbourne is kind of the, the basketball capital don't tell Paul Smith I said this but Melbourne's <laughs> the basketball capital of Australia in terms of just producing so it probably does come back down to that breaking down the barriers as you said yeah 100% I think you know anywhere, anywhere you go in in Melbourne it's two dollars it's just a gold coin to oh, get in and you know damn. people are, are willing to just you know pay that and some courts take it because they know on school holidays it's going to be packed like this is how yeah. it is and you know i grew up playing on the outside call with a lot of my mates and we still hoop outside when i go home so it's cool like you grow up on the streets and that's how it's supposed to be but yeah look i definitely agree melbourne is like the sports capital and like that basketball capital but 
again, what Paul Smith and like the Kings are trying to do is build that vision again in Sydney. So I think it's slowly on the upward trend and, you know, they've got kind of the resources and, you know, the funding to go with it. What was your junior club in Melbourne? I played for the Melbourne Tigers growing up. So how were you like going through the ranks? Were you like always at the top of the class or did you have to work your way up? Nah, so I first when I first wanted to play rep, I tried out for the Werribee Devils. And it's a funny story because Chris Helliger, who still coaches today, was the one who cut me from Werribee, like completely didn't make a single team. And then six years later when I was playing on the 20 state team, uh, my dad told me who he actually was. So he was my assistant coach at the time, but he told me, you know, what he did in the past. And a lot of people, you know, just laugh at him. And it's kind of a story that, you know, everyone talks about. So, yeah, that, I decided to go to Melbourne Tigers. And the first two years, three years, were a bit of like a struggle playing in the lower levels and being cut. And, you know, I wanted to quit as well. You know, I just, I thought, hey, this may, might not be the sport for me. But when you got a great, you know, an individual coach, Nick Abdicic, who's the director of, uh, kind of director of basketball at Melbourne Tigers now today, he took me under his wing, told me, hey, just give it some time. You'll be the best there is. And that's what we did. We just kept working day in and day out and ended up being, you know, one of the best players to come out of kind of, you know, Melbourne and Victoria, for real. At what age group did you start making those rep sides? Well, I, I made rep from, you know, bottom age 14s, but it was always the lower teams. So, like, Melbourne yeah. had, Melbourne's so good at, you know, creating so many teams and creating an opportunity for kids to, you know, even if they want to play, play at the the lowest and worked their way up which was me and I played on the fifth team played on the fourth team the third team and then I made the first side and kind of just kicked gear from there so yeah I think it was under 16 stop eight so I was 15 at the time yeah, I didn't realize there were so many rep teams I'm pretty sure not to make this about me but my one season of rep basketball I think there was one team and I was a development player and that was it and then I was just too small to get back in there so yeah. it's crazy that like just to me as an outsider listening that there's what five six rep teams at a club like nah there was yeah. one when I was playing and I'm so your age what, or like a year yeah, older that's why you. like there's so many successful people from Melbourne or you know up and coming just because of just given the opportunity to play like period like when I was in under yeah. 14 in the second side we were up in the top playing against the top you know 10 teams we were ranked I think third or fourth at the time and like we had so many there was 10 of us who could have made any other first team in, in the state, but we all, we were in the second side hooping. And yeah, that's kind of the you know memories I have is just people getting the chance to, you know, play and, and develop and yeah, so it was good. So after your rep career in Melbourne, at what point do you go to the AIS? And I guess what's that process like of getting into there? Yeah, so I, I got invited to, I got a scholarship to AIS when I just turned 16. I was bottom age 18s for Melbourne Tigers and I've, I've played a couple of Australian, you know, tournaments, you know, for Victoria and played, you know, represented my national team at a at a, at a qualifier event. And yeah, Andre Lamanis and Brad Davidson at the time, you know, brought me in and said, look, we want to bring you on scholarship, you know, to be here with the 12 best players of anywhere between, at the time, I think it was 95, 96 and 97 born and uh, just go up against each other each and every day, get better and develop for the future. And yeah, I moved there in 2014. I just turned six, just turned 16, yeah. So I went there and spent my two years there and obviously won a national championship for Lake Ginandera with uh, Jack White. And yeah, it was a great you know development kind of pro, uh, journey for me. Did you move to Canberra by yourself or did your family go with you? No, I've been living by myself since I was 16. So I kind of, you know, 
it's always good to go home to your family but again it's good to kind of go out there by yourself you, you learn you know how to take care of yourself you learn what the you know living by yourself life really is you learn how to cook you learn how to clean you learn how to go to school you know find your own transportation and stuff like that so and you learn a lot more about yourself you get to hang out with mates who are in the same situation so I kind of enjoy that and then every time we get to go home for the holidays two to three weeks get to spend good quality time with the family was it tough initially moving away so young um i don't think it was so tough because i was only like an hour flight away so it wasn't like yeah. i just moved halfway across the world so i think it was pretty simple because we we're in the same time zone you know you facetime them every night you know you call them so you know it was it was smooth sailing for me i guess moving away to hoop it probably takes some of the sting away from it because you're just doing what you love yeah exactly i mean I get to travel the world now and, you know, play the game I love. And, you know, my family know this is my job. As long as I communicate with them, like, they're, they're happy and, and they support me no matter where I am in the world. Who else was in your intake at the IIS? Oof. There was myself. There was Jack White, Xavier Cooks, um, Isaac Humphreys, Tanner Krebs, Will Magne, George Blagojevich, uh, Jack McVeigh, Harry Froling, Tom Wilson, Jock Perry, um, Abby Akintola. I think that was mostly it. And then as I as I got older, they kind of brought in a couple of young guys like Tom Fullerton, Angus Glover, and a few other young guys that I can't name because never became so close to them. So yeah, well that's <clears throat> that's a pretty fair class then. I mean. There's NBA players there, some pretty solid NBL players, an AFL player. I think Tom Wilson ended up going to Collingwood, so that's a that's a pretty loaded. I don't know what the other class is like, but just off top, that seems pretty loaded. Yeah, I mean, but other than Dante Exxon's class, who was two years before, obviously the class they had, they ended up you know winning silver at uh, under seventeen World Championships and finished fourth at the under nineteen. So we were kind of the second group behind them because we claimed also a silver medal at the under seventeen World Championships. So. The AIS really just prepared all of us for that. So you're technically uh, Angus Glover's vet then? Yeah, if you want to put it like that, yeah. I'm only a year <laughs> older, but, you know, I've got that kind of experience and yeah, he's like a little brother to me, so it's all love to Gus. Um, so while you're at the AIS, I assume that's when the whole college recruiting cycle started, um, if not even earlier. But I guess we hear about how easy it is in America to get scouted, but obviously down here it's a little bit different. You know, not as much exposure. What was that like for you, just getting yourself out there first of all? I think the big thing for me is I was performing so well at the junior level here, and then you know they brought me into Australian teams, and that helped me kind of excel. Um, going to all these little tournaments, Oceania, Asia, you know, playing at a World Championship twice, that kind of put my name on the map and. You know, I had I played really well throughout the whole, you know, tournaments, each and every tournament. So, you know, I started getting a lot of interest and, you know, that's where I was kind of learning more about what the collegiate system is really like, how the recruiting goes. Um, I The only reason I committed to Miami is because, you know, they had coaches fly out. Like, no one takes a 24-hour flight to be here for 36 hours with a player and check, like, where he lives, who he trains with, get to know my family and stuff like that. So when people take the time to do that, it's, it goes a long way. So that's really what put you over then for Miami? I think once I took my official visit to Miami, just my mum my fell in love with the campus. It's always, like, warm um, the whole year round. Uh, campus was really... 
it's it's big, but it's small compared to the other ones. Um, like Stanford's a very big campus. Like there was no way I'd get around just walking compared to Miami where you could just walk, you know, beat a class every easy five to 10 minutes, whatever, and stuff like that. So yeah, just I think the basketball system was great. The business school was like top 30 or top 20 in the country. Um, yeah, so I looked at things both academically and as a basketball perspective. Where else was in for you besides Miami and Stanford? Well, I was going to go to Louisville, but they went through the whole scandal. Uh, I was going to go to LSU, but David Patrick, um, he, he, he swapped schools um, and California, Berkeley, but the coach there was going to leave the following year, so I didn't really want to take an official visit there. So I just stuck with the two schools, one on the East Coast, Miami, and then one on the West Coast in Stanford, spent my week visiting, and then I just flew home after that. And what timeline is all this? Is this in your last year of AS and high school or is it before that? I just graduated. So 2015, it was January of 2016. I spent from, I think it was the 8th of January till about the 16th of January in the States. Came back. Then I spent about six weeks with the Perth Wildcats as a development player. A lot of people that don't know that. But, you know, I had a really good coach in Jamie O'Loughlin who brought me over and Adam Ford. That's why I have a great connection with the both of them. And, um, yeah, I made my decision. I think it was two or three days after I'd gone to Perth. I just felt like, woke up one morning, look, my guts told me I got to commit to Miami and I did so. Damn, yeah, I didn't know you were a Perth Wildcat. That's probably one for the trivia trivia nights. That's, uh, that's a lot of, that's a, it's an interesting fact that a lot of people don't know and that's the year they actually won the, the championship in 2016. So, Did you get a ring for that one? No, I didn't. I actually didn't. So I claim I'm a three-time champ, but only two are <laughs> on the record. I guess so you're in Miami all four years you're playing really well setting school records three-pointers and all that sort of stuff I guess to actually sorry one thing before we move on from that was there any part of you that thought besides college like maybe just going straight professional or were you always kind of set on going NCAA no I was always going to go to the college side of things just because my dad both my parents are really big on uh, really high on academics um they always preach to me is like if you do get hurt you like knock on wood it doesn't happen like again but if you were to get hurt and you can't play basketball or can't play a sport again what do you have as a backup so for me to go to school and get my you know bachelor's degree and my master's degree all in a four year span kind of helped me set up you know what next what's next for me after you know life of basketball and there was never any thought of leaving early miami all four years I was considering after my third year, after I graduated, but I was so close at, you know, breaking a couple of records and and stuff like that. And obviously I was in a, you know, relationship with my missus and stuff like that. So I don't know, like a lot of things weighed up, but yeah, staying one more year didn't really hurt me because I think when I came into the NBL, I was much more prepared. You know, I'd had that extra year playing against a lot more elite guys in the ACC and you know, if I didn't get hurt, I tell a lot of people I probably would have won Rookie of the Year in the NBL, even though you know Josh Giddy won it. But again, I was just much more prepared than I thought than the rest of the rookies. Yeah, you you were favorite. We'll get to this later, but you were favorite, I think, at one point for Rookie of the Year that year. Yeah, it was funny because I actually did an article before after my first year, and I mentioned that there was there was a lot of disrespect. You know, there was a lot of Josh Giddy. You know, again, he's a great player. There was a lot of Mojave King hype. Um, there's a lot of hype around you know, other players and I think I was like the forgotten one and when you have Chris Bunga as probably the best GM in the league you have best front office you know ownership and stuff who trust you and 
allow you to play and be your, yourself, like that's who you want to play for. So going back to your last year of Miami, I assume this is when you start kind of getting an idea about or getting professional teams starting to take a look at you. At what point does Sydney come in for you? Oh, Sydney came at the start of my third year of, of college, really. Like they were sending me these little gift baskets. Perth Wildcats were sending me gift baskets. Melbourne United, Cairns. Um, yeah, those four teams were kind of just reaching out. It was cool because those little gift baskets, you were getting kind of the, the type of food, that like candy that you wouldn't get in, in um, the U.S., so, so Tim like, Tams and stuff like Tim that. Tim Tams, you get them red frogs, like <laughs> all them sort of things. Like that's what I'm most fiend for. And then, yeah, okay, you send me a jersey. Like that's cool. But if you would have sent me like a big candy box, I'd rather prefer that, you know. So, and then I got some shapes. So, yeah, I think the Kings Kings were always asking about me. It was just about when I was going to come out and stuff. So, for me, it was a bigger decision to kind of decide what agency I wanted to go with and then kind of just kick off from there. What shapes? Oh, man, I, I had a barbecue. I had, I think it was the bacon one, bacon and cheese or something. And then I, I think it was pizza flavor too. So I, I think those were the three that were sent to me. All right, as long as they weren't sending you those rubbish chicken ones, it's all good. I'm, yeah, I don't eat chicken shapes, but I ain't going to lie. Here and there, I'll, I'll kill a pack if I need to just to change. <laughs> nah, nah, barbecue or nothing. Um, but it's interesting that, because obviously you mentioned your relationship with Adam Ford from your time in Perth as a DP. Obviously, he became the Kings coach once Will Weaver went to Houston after the 2020 season. I think my timeline's right. But it's the Kings were in before... Was that before Adam Ford even got there? Is when they started asking you? Or is it just after he had signed as an assistant with I think the it Kings? was as he signed for the assistant role with Will Weaver. Um, and I know Fordy again from that development spot. We spent... Uh, just halfway through 2019 at a university games together which we won bronze in so there's a lot there's a good connection between me and 40 and I thank him a lot because he allowed me to be me allowed me to go out there and hoop and kind of help the team win and yeah we were struck with injuries like Jarrell Martin you know played games here and there he was struggling Xavier Cooks was out for 70% of the year then I go down you know with the remaining last 12 or 15 games to go so I, I obviously United won it, and I think they still would have won it. But again, we probably would have given them a run for their money, even during the COVID times. So, so so once Forty became head coach, that was it for you. You were going to go to the Kings. Uh, I already signed. It was during so that was my first year. So Will Weaver actually recruited me. Oh, so okay. he was still the head coach, and as I as I came to Sydney, I probably work out. I'd been working out for a month, maybe a month, six weeks. Then he got offered this role in which he took and then the Kings didn't have enough time to kind of get a get a new head coach. And so they stuck with Adam Ford as a head coach and James Duncan as an assistant coach. And uh, yeah, we just went with that. And I think it turned out pretty well under the circumstances with players' injuries and stuff like that. And obviously that was still pandemic times as well, right? So what's playing in a pandemic like? Oh man, I think... I ain't never, I've never practiced so much in my life. I think we went... I arrived... <laughs> late August with the hopes of kicking off December 5th or whenever they said it was. Then in November, they had switched the schedule. Oh, no, mid-October, they switched the schedule saying we won't play now until January 16th. So they gave us 10 days off. 
So when the border between Sydney and Melbourne kind of opened, I flew home straight away. Like, I haven't seen my family in so long. I just want to hang with them. And, yeah, it was just once we came back to train, you couldn't really do much besides go to practice. We were getting tested every day. Couldn't even go to the store without wearing a mask. Like, life was like, oh, I'm not going to lie, terrible. But, again, it wasn't too bad because you go to practice, play you go to practice, you play the game you love, and then you come home and play Call of Duty. Like, but dance, <laughs> rebirth, those were the times, man. Like, I've never played so so many games just with my mates. Like, my schedule was wake up in the morning at 7, play basketball till 1, and then play Call of Duty from 2 till about 10 p.m. So that was just me in the pandemic life. Were you just getting dubs on Warzone that whole time? I started off a little slow because I was behind. I hadn't downloaded the game in America, you know, during COVID and, and all that stuff when it started because in America, we stayed kind of isolated from everyone. Uh, my girlfriend's grandparents, they lived like near a beach, a canal, and we went fishing, we'd go canoeing, we'd still be able to go out and swim and we kind of just enjoyed the outdoors and kind of just enjoyed each other's company, I guess. Um. You mentioned the testing every day. That's got to be the worst part because I've been like, I assume it's the proper nasal test, like not just a rat. It's the proper like up your nose one. Like I've had that once or twice, but every day that's got to, that's got to suck. Yeah. I, I, it wasn't as bad as hotel quarantine though. Cause so they, they swab your nose, each nostril, and then they swab your throat with the same one, which I thought it was very weird. So they either. Oh, that's not right. They either swab you a little too high up the nose, which made you, made me <laughs> sneeze one time on the nurse or they swab your throat really like, like inappropriately, I guess. <laughs> so wait, they're using the same, that's not right. That's surely That's what best. I said to her and I was like, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to swab me with a different one. Like that's like me just saying I picked my nose and ate it. Like that's what it was. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Damn. Um, all right. The Achilles injury. We've referenced it a little bit already, but I've obviously never done anything like that. But I've read a lot of, especially basketballers who have done their Achilles, like KD, I think is the great example, um, but heaps of them throughout the years. And they always say it feels like someone's kicking you in the back of your leg. And mm-hmm. every time you watch an Achilles, uh, someone doing their Achilles and they kind of do that half turn around to check that no one's kicked them. And then that's when the realization, is that what it's like? Yeah, um, it, it was funny because I really thought Bryce Cotton had kicked me because he was guarding me. So I drew past, I drove past and kicked it to a player. I'd, had, I'd stepped back to the three, and as someone shot it, I stepped forward. And I was still thinking Bryce was there, that he's accidentally tripped me. But when I looked behind, no one was there. I was like, yeah, like, this is what it is. Like, people just say you look behind, and that's your Achilles gone. And it was funny because my dad was like, no, nah, you haven't torn your Achilles. So I was able to walk. And Jack White had torn his the week before, so he wasn't able to walk at all. So he was like, don't worry, like, you haven't torn. I'm like, dad, that's torn. They did a bit of testing. I was like, there's no point testing. Like, I already know this isn't Achilles gone. Let's get surgery organized and let's just go from there. Like, let's not just mess around. And I was very fortunate enough. Surgeon got me in the next day, got it all done. And, you know, two days later, I was on the sidelines supporting my team again. So, full credit to, you know, the medical staff and the surgeon. So, yeah, with that, on something with that famous beanie that became such a thing. Yeah, that was funny. I, I've been offered, you know, quite a hefty, a lot of money, like a lot of money for the beanie, and I've never, <laughs> never given it away because I think that's just became a trademark over the, the my injury time was, you know, everyone's known me for my beanie, so yeah, that's gonna kind of, kind of stay sacred with me. Yeah, yeah, it, it's actually weird because 
I'm pretty. I went back and watched the um, not the injury, the press conference after, and Forty just goes straight away. Yeah, we know it's an Achilles. He's already booked in. It, is it rare that it happens so quickly like that? Just like everything, everyone knows because I feel like with a lot of injuries, it's usually a wait and see. But I guess you just knew straight away. The thing was, if I hadn't gotten surgery, my return to play would have been a much longer duration and the potential of me doing it again and kind of ruining my entire career, it would have been very high, like completely high. So I just said, whoever surgeon you got, like the best, and they had him right on a phone call. He was he was somewhere on a holiday. Um, and he just said, yeah, don't worry. I'm going to call my people right now. We're going to book you in tomorrow afternoon. And next thing you know, 1 a.m., I got the text, be at the hospital at 11 a.m. You're going to go into surgery at 1 p.m. And it'll go from there. It just happened all so fast. And I didn't, it didn't really kick into me like that. I torn my Achilles fully until like my adrenaline fully worn off and I was sitting at home. Like that's when I understood like, hey, this is going to be a long, anywhere between nine to 12 months, you know. And you mentioned Jack White. I was going to bring him up as well, but yeah, he tore his yeah the week before. He said he couldn't walk. So you could slightly walk or were there levels taught or you just... Um... I could walk until the adrenaline wore off, for real. Okay. Yeah. And then it was like, you just, like, there's no, it's like a dead leg. So, like, it's so hard to keep your, because on my right side, my right part of my body kind of to absorb the pressure. So, yeah, I just, yeah. I just stuck crutches. So it was your left, it was your left foot? Left no, no, my right foot, my right oh, foot. Oh, it was your right, sorry, yeah. And so, how long do you have to rest before the rehab process starts? Uh, my rehab started straight away. I was icing. I was doing these exercises to kind of strengthen my calf a little bit or whatever calf was left because the the muscle, the rupture happened between the calf and the Achilles, so I couldn't really get much strength to the calf. So it was doing a bit of prehab because I was once I got surgery, it was two weeks in, in like a cast and then another four weeks in the boot. So it was like couldn't walk for six weeks. And once I started to walk, it just felt weird. It's like learning how to walk all the way, uh, like from the start again. And how long will you end up out for? Was it nine, nine, ten months? No, I was out for eight. I was very fortunate enough to kind of, I ended up spending two months with my Sydney medical staff. Then I flew over here in Miami to kind of continue with the people at University of Miami because I did, I had a serious injury in college where I had a stretch fracture in my foot <laughs> and I kind of trusted them. Because they got brought me back kind of quickly and they have all these kind of technology, higher technology standards here in the US compared to Australia because they're very bit old school in Australia. So I kind of took the gamble, came here. And next thing you know, once I got back to Australia, they're like, this is nearly fully like healed. Like we were like progressing much faster than they thought it would. So full credit to like kind of both parties. Now, with a lot of injuries, they often talk about the mental side of the recovery is so much harder than the actual physical stuff because you can be told your Achilles is right, you can start pushing yourself, but there's always that little bit in the back of your mind that's like just doubting yourself. Is that what it was like for you? Uh, I think I struggled more mentally at the start when I couldn't walk and had to like rely on people to kind of do stuff for me. Uh, that's kind of, that was my biggest struggle. I think once I learned how to run and I trusted myself during workouts, like individually wise, I had no doubt that whatever the surgeon did, like this, it won't happen again. So 
I kind of took all belief in him and trusted him what he said. And I still talk to him to, to this day, like, and tell him, look, I went through another whole season of no issues. And all he does is give me a thumbs up. Like, that's just like he just getting a text with someone that, you know, he's done a great job and kind of my career is just keeping getting better and better. Like, ain't no better feeling. So your first game back, you were pretty much all the way there mentally then? Uh, yeah, I was, but I wasn't allowed to play many minutes. Like, it was a game Melbourne United had 26, uh, jumped us 26 zip. And I was just I was sitting on say. the bench and I couldn't do anything about it. Like, they wanted to play me in the second half to kind of get some run, but no. Nah, like, we were already down 40 when I checked in, so there, was much, there wasn't much I could do except, you know, run off the dust, I guess. <clears throat> I, I guess in a way that... As far as, obviously, you don't want to get thumped like that, but as far as first game backs go, it's probably a, a bit of an easier environment if you ignore the fact that you got done by like 40-odd. Honestly, man, I couldn't care. We could have lost by 100. I wouldn't have cared. For me to return in front of my family and friends was was a bigger achievement than anything else. Like, see, you know, my parents did a lot for me. They trusted my rehab process. So for me to just check in, you look at them and, you know, they give you a thumbs up and like, yeah, you're back, like, It'll take some time, but hey, you're back. Like now, mm-hmm. let's just you know, kind of progress from there. And then we played Southeast at home two days later. You know, the, the 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 standing ovation I got from the crowd was unreal. Like as soon as I checked in, everyone was standing, you know, applauding. Um, you know, and then the court announcer Eric did a fantastic job. So you know, it just gives you that energy to go back and hoop. And yeah, it took me you know three four games, get my legs under me, get a bit more practice. But after that, it just kept getting better and better. I was going to ask how long it took you to feel like you were all the way back, but was there just one moment where you were like, all right, I'm back now? Yeah, I think the Brisbane game, uh, we played away, even though we lost, we were. I was able to change direction. I was moving like the way I was. I was hitting the shots. And then, yeah, just from that game, it just got better and better and better. After your season with 40, Chase, uh, he obviously goes to Cairns. And Chase Buford comes in. Forty is obviously a very passionate coach. He doesn't mind a yell. I guess you're kind of used to that with Chase coming in there. What's Chase like? I guess I'm trying to get is what's Chase like off the court from what we don't see? Because everyone knows Chase, the coach persona, but what's he like just every day? He's a cool dude to talk to, man. Like he he comes from a, a very good family, obviously. RC Buford, you know, and what he does at the Spurs and I think Chase is one of the best coaches I've had regarding like X's and O's and plays and knows how to scout teams really well. So I think the first year we clicked so well is because all of us were playing video games together, including Chase. So it was, well, we run it, like we'd run, it was myself, it was Chase, Jalen Adams, Jarrell, Xavier Cooks, Angus Glover. Like there was six, seven of us playing Call of Duty all at once and we just rotate like, because you can only have like four on a team. So we'd always rotate in and out and kind of get that connection forming. And I always tell everyone, once we were healthy, that first year we won the championship, it was going to be hard for anyone else to beat us. So who was, who was the guy? Yeah. I don't want people to take, look at Chase and go, yeah, he's a guy that just yells and, you know, breaks LED screens or does this. <laughs> but like, man, Chase is just passionate. He loves to win. And man, like we got two championships. What else? Like, you can talk as much shit as you want about him. Man's a two-time champ. Let us let Sydney the first championship in seventeen years and ran it back to back. Like that's unheard of. Uh, I know the whole city loves him. Whereas you know, you hear his players just th- like you just now talking about him, and 
it seems like you will go to the death to defend someone like that with the results, but also someone who seems like he cares about you as people before players. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he, he'll take a bullet for us and we'll do the same for him. Like, he's just, just a great guy and yeah, there's, no, there's nothing else. There's no, nothing negative I have to say about him, honestly. Who, who was the, uh, the weak link in that Call of Duty session? Oh, I ain't gonna lie to you. It was either Xavier Cooks or... Now, Chase was good. Like, he ain't get many kills, but he'd keep us alive in Rebirth. Like, he'd be go looting. He'd get us all these contracts. Like, I'm the guy <laughs> who'd go out and sweat with Jarrell and do all this stuff, but, like, Chase kept us alive. X would lag a little bit behind, so... I, I wouldn't say it's X, but there's a few others on the team that that are below X's standard, but I didn't play with them, so... I mean, I, I'm rubbish at... I can't talk. I was the guy just, like, breaking all the chests. I'm not killing anyone, but it's good to <laughs> see that there's someone else in that role like me. You mentioned Xavier Cooks. You've obviously played with him for a few years now, and obviously he had a few injury issues in his first couple of years at the Kings, but then really kicked on into what we know he is today. What What is playing with him like and how much easier does some, having someone like that make your job as a perimeter guy it's cool because he plays so unselfishly um, he always wants what's best for you he wants what's best for the team there's no I in him it's always just win it's always team first um, yeah I told you he was the best player in the league this year a lot of people you know, didn't like me saying that but tell me a guy who can get a rebound and go coast to coast or go get a rebound and you know distribute to players, or, or dunk on you, or and do all the little intangibles. Like he didn't have to shoot for us. Understand? He didn't have to be on the perimeter to shoot because we were so well rounded. And that's what Chris Pongrass and the ownership of Sydney do so well is they recruit each position so well. Like you had Derek Walton who could handle the ball, Jalen Adams, you know, they had myself, Angus Glover who can shoot the ball, or you have a defensive presence in Justin Simon, like. What Ian Clark comes in too, like Jarrell Martin. We can all like shoot that ball. And Xavier Cooks is the middle man to you know, top it all off. So yeah, he's a wonderful guy. And I actually got off the phone with him just before. Um, there's a bit of interest from Washington. So I told him to put in a good word from me. So <laughs> it'll be good to kind of, if I could hoop with him again, that'll be, you know, a kind of a cool story to tell. Is that a summer league? You, you and him ripping up summer league? Uh, he's not going to play. Um, he's just, he gets back, I think. End of July, so um, yeah, I've got interest from a few teams, but we'll see. I'm just trying to find the right situation where I can kind of play, and there's, I think that they're the biggest club that's shown interest in me. Just quick, another one on Xavier. What was his? What in your mind? What was his best poster from the last season? His best poster uh, on Isaac Humphreys, no doubt. Like you, you don't watch if you watch the game fully back. Like we get the rebound, I'm pushing, but all you see is Xavier just. Put on the Jets. And I saw him running. It was just all about getting to him in, the, in his stride. And to go back and clock it, Isaac's jumped fully. That that dunk, that's, that might be the dunk of the decade. decade. Might even be the dunk of, like, forever in the NBL, honestly. Yeah, my parents obviously have watched Kings for the last 30-odd years. I think they go back to the 90s with guys like McLean and Trimmingham and these guys that would, like, throw posters down. And even there, like, we haven't seen a, a dunk that vicious in a very very long time he's just a rare athlete for the NBL yeah he's just so long and lengthy and clumsy I call him clumsy too but again he had a few good posters this year like the one on Kai Soto too you got I got the side view so yeah, that was nasty <laughs> as well 
you see the full extension. Yep. Um, and then lastly on X, when he got the call from the Wizards and when he signs with that, what was that moment like for you as a team to see your guy get to the next level like that? I've, uh, throughout the year, I had conversations with X and, you know, he, he seemed off at times and, you know, I'd always ask him, what's up? And he goes, yeah, I just had all this NBA worry about me. And I said, man, you just got to let it go for now. Like, everyone knows what you can do. And, you know, it was just all about the right team at the right time. He's got a great agent, you know, and stuff like that. So once he got that, it was like, it was a no surprise for me. But again, like, he's worked so hard to get to this. So you always got to be proud to you know where he's becoming you know, he, win, he wins the grand final MVP you know the first year of our championship comes in and wins the MVP of this season along with two championships there ain't no more more rightfully deserving reward than having a team call you and kind of you know get to your a lifelong dream and we were all proud of him let's go back to that championship series against Tassie um, especially game two when you became public enemy number one in Hobart, what was hitting that shot like? I knew it was going to go in from the jump. Uh, I think people don't realize, oh, yeah, it's a lucky shot. No, I just, the way I timed it up with my footwork, the way I had the confidence to shoot the ball without hesitation. And once it went in, it was just, it was game over. Like, that that was like kind of wrapped up the series. And that's how I felt. Like, it was just, I have a lot of confidence in myself. You know, I've made a lot of shots throughout my junior career and in the pros that, you know, I don't shy away. I could go all 15 for a whole game and hit that last shot if need be. Like, I'm never going to shy away from that moment. So, yeah, you know, I love going back to Tassie. Um, you know, they hate me down there, but again, it's it's all love-hate. So, you know, appreciate uh, I, can, I can tell because I live here now, and I can tell you when I walked, like, the people that follow the the Jack Jumbers, when I walked in there on the next morning, they they were spitting. They, hate, <laughs> they were not happy. No, it's, I was it's, happy. I was fine with it. Yeah, yeah. it's a funny story because my girlfriend actually babysits these two kids and her family are from Tasmania. And once they understood who I was, they've now become Sydney Kings fans. So it's going to be interesting whenever they go back to Tassie, they'll probably order you know my jerseys. I think they've ordered a couple already and rocking them in Tassie will be a very interesting kind of story to tell and kind of a scene to see. So. <laughs> What what was that whole championship series like though? Because as as your first you know final series as a pro, like was there a special level of, I guess intensity? Were you more nervous than normal, or was it just you know business as usual? Um, I think what helped us the most is we were so connected off the court. Um, like as I said, we always loved to play video games with each other. We'd go bowling with each other. We'd go grab a few drinks and dinner with each other. Like. I've never been so connected on and off a court with a team and we all loved each other. Like there was no egos. It was all about championship or nothing. Like that's the mentality we had. So I think I I knew this team was so special when we lost those two games against Adelaide and then the last game against Illawarra in the regular season. And then we came back two days later preparing for Illawarra. We were so locked in. Everyone was talking during our scout meetings. We knew all the plays from the like like the back of our hand. Like we were all talking. You know, Chase he could have gone to the locker room and let us just play, and we understood what what the job we had to do. We went to Illawarra, we beat them there. We came back, we beat them at our at our home to win the semis. Then we understood. Look, Tazzy, 
I think Tassie was fortunate enough to make the finals because of Chris Goulding going down. But again, like they they play hard, they play tough. We understood who we were going against, and we just had to win. We had to take care of business at home, and then go win a tough one without Jalen Adams in game two, which we did. And then the third game is always the hardest because it's a closeout game. So you know we were down for most of the game. They had a few you know main key players out, but you know we stuck through it. We chopped wood, and we got it done for the city. Was there any pressure knowing you were favourites? Uh, a little bit, but again, it depends how you want to dwell on it. Do you want to keep worrying about what other people say and worry about what sports bet's saying and, and stuff like that? and Or do you want to go in and take care of business, win a championship and, you know, celebrate? Like, I celebrate. We celebrated for five days straight. Like, that is a, yeah. that's, that's just what, what we wanted to do and we just loved hanging out with each other, I guess. Did you get around um, uh, Gus handing out the shoe? Hell no. You ain't going to see me drinking out of Gus's shoe at all. That's that's a Gus and his dad and a Chase Buford kind of little story. So you're not, you're not getting around the shoeies? No, hell no. Catch me. Catch me. I'll, I'll drink a whole <laughs> bottle of champagne by myself, but you'll never see me drinking out of a shoe. <laughs> so after that season then, you come back, you're the defending champions. Obviously, you had such a great season last year and everyone was already giving you their best, but how does that change now that you are the hunted? Uh, I think that it put a lot of pressure on us. I think those couple we had a couple of losses early in the season. A lot of people started doubting us. You know, I think we started doubting ourselves a little bit. We thought it was going to be sweet and easy, but when you're the hunted, everyone wants to come play their best game against us. Like We were scouting dudes who couldn't shoot the ball to, you know, couldn't shoot even in the ocean and they were hitting threes against us and that's just how everyone wanted to beat us and that was fair but again we just stuck through it you know we'd win when we had to our bench was amazing we had the best bench in the league by far you know a lot of teams only played six seven guys max we played 11 we could play 11 guys like most of our bench could be starters on other teams so we were very fortunate for our bench again comes down to recruiting front office Chris Pongrass fantastic job so yeah, we just stuck to it. We took the being hunted and, you know, we, we took it right to New Zealand in you know, game five and we ended up winning. What what was playing a final series like in New Zealand? Because they're a pretty vicious kind of on top of you crowd. And obviously New Zealand had a great season. I think when you look at what they did last year, uh, two years ago, sorry, where they probably had a disappointing season, but the you know the pandemic, they were away from home for so long. But then to come back, have the season they did under Modi Mayor with their guys like Brantley and Pardon and McDowell White. How tough was that to go into their place and win games in the finals? Always, um, yeah. The crowd was amazing. Like first time going to New Zealand, you know, seeing the vibe, everyone there. It's a hostile crowd, but but it's nothing personal. Like is this very? It's passionate. They love their sport, you know. Chase referred them to as like the New Zealand Breakers played like the, the Tall Blacks or whatever the the rugby team is called, and that's how they played. They played physical. They could get away with things because that's how they played every game, not just against us, but against every other team. So it was refed a little bit differently, but uh, yeah, we took game two because I reckon if we if we had lost game two, they would have came to Sydney and beat us in game three. In all honesty, that's what I would have thought. But again, we had a great bench. We stuck deep. We had X out. We had Derek out. We just all, you know, chop wood, stick together. And yeah, all I can say, we're a two-time champ. You know, we were hunted. Uh, everyone else, 
they can enjoy their off season, man, because we enjoyed it once we won. That's for sure. And what about Justin Simon in game two? Oh, let me tell you what he was taking. Will McDowell's cookies. He was taking that ball <laughs> like it was nothing. Like Justin's got the longest arms I've ever seen for his height. He just reads. He can never put the ball in front of him. Like he he just knows how to take it from you and. Yeah, he's just he played one hell of a game. I think he had six or seven steals. So, you know, he, he kind of changed the whole game for us in that third quarter, which helped a lot. Yeah, he was getting a lot of, he was getting a lot of, I guess, after that game, a lot of finals MVP chat. Because I think a lot of people thought that, like you said, if you had lost that game, it would have been really hard for you to come back from 0-2 down, especially with the clouds that Derek and X were under. But his performance in game two, and then he kept going for the rest of the series as well. Um, one of the best defensive players I think we've seen in the NBL in the last 30 years, but also just one of the best final series from a guy who, no disrespect, you probably considered like a fourth option. For sure. And then you got to keep in mind, he, was, he wasn't he was even in contention for the defense of the player of the year. He wasn't even in the top five. Like, that's what I say. Who, who does this voting system? Like, it's people that, you know, that commentate the game that some of them don't have no clue about what they're saying. they got people who put in votes, who never played basketball in their life, but they write about basketball. Like, that's just, like, I don't know, the NBL needs to change. I think it needs to be a referee-based kind of voting system or it has to be from, like, the legends of the game, like the Andrew Gaze or the Leonard Copeland or, you know, people who have played a long time. It, it can't be these so-called, you know, I don't think Corey Homicide Williams should be allowed to vote. All he does is talk smack, but he's never, what? Well, yeah, he's won one MVP, but he ain't, he ain't a legend in this league. He hasn't won anything. So to me, I don't think someone like that or someone who writes for News Corp for two people should be allowed to vote because it's based on their opinions who have never played basketball before. Like this is the NBL. You want to create a great... I understand you want to create the hype and, and all this stuff, but let the people who have played basketball do the talking. Allow former players who understand the game well. Like Chris Hansty writes all these great things on Twitter and Facebook and you know, his opinions. That's someone who you have to, like, acknowledge because he's played the game, he's won championships, he's played in the NBA, he's played for the Boomers. We ain't taking it for someone who hasn't played basketball before, so. Did Justin take it personally when he found out he wasn't in the list? I think he did. He might have not said anything, but he'd tell us at practice, yeah, like, he. I think, I think one practice when they released the list, he just went ballistic. He was dunking everything. He was making every three <laughs> possible... I was like, yeah, Justin's is just... I think we got to piss Justin off more often because he was clearly <laughs> practiced that day. And one last thing just on NBL, and it's not even a finals, it's just one specific game, but every Hooper at some point in their life has entered the zone where it doesn't matter who's guarding you or what's happening, whatever you shoot's going in. That 42-pointer uh, game against SEM, what's the zone like? Oh, man, once you see the first go in, like, it's just a big round hula hoop. Like, whatever you shoot is going in. And I always love playing against Southeast Melbourne. I love playing against both Melbourne teams. It's because they never recruited me out of college. I'm a hometown boy. I know I can hoop. But, you know, if you, don't, you didn't want to recruit me, that's cool. Um, I remember signing my new contract this year with the Kings. They offered, they lowballed me very low. Like, I wanted to return home. I wanted to play a season at home. But the offer was so low, like it was kind of embarrassing. So I stuck with the Kings. I'm always going to stick with the Kings. And yeah, I just went at 
went at every single person that wanted to guard me that day. And yeah, they got 42 points and 10 threes put on them. So the zone, when you're in it, it's hard to leave. And speaking of, uh, going back a little bit, playing, you obviously played for the Boomers in a lot of underage, or Australia, in a lot of underage teams, but obviously making your senior debut during that World Cup qualifying period, just playing with the best guys that you know that, that were the league has to offer at the time what was that experience like it's awesome man um i never been around a team that just cared more about each other than anyone like i remember on game day we were all chatting pre-game meal for like two or three hours like it's game day we're supposed to be going to rest and all this stuff but we're just around the table talking everyone's playing at different locations and kind of telling their story and you got nick k who's playing in japan you got angus brand in japan um, I think we had someone from Europe kind of tell their story. So it was like cool to see and hear like the different stories of being, you know, different part of the boomers programs, different parts of, you know, where they're playing. And it's just a great environment. Like you always play for the green and gold and that flag on your chest. And yeah, it was just a tremendous honor. Was there anyone in that camp that you had your opinion changed during that time? Like some arrival that you were like, I don't like this guy. Then after the camp, you're like, oh man, this guy's all right. No, I, I, I'm never like that. Um, I, don't, I don't think... I, I'll be hesitant to talk to people if I feel uncomfortable or don't know people that well until like we get to know them personally at the table or if they want to have a conversation. But I never had any, any negativity or any bad words towards anyone. I think I was more pissed off at people that were perceiving them in the wrong way, like a Todd Blanchfield or, or a Mitch Norton. Like, those guys didn't deserve the hate they got from Perth fans, from the NBL, from their coaching staff, because those guys are great role players. They just have to be given a chance. And I think Perth would have gone a long, long way if they would be able to play because Todd Blanchfield, like, he killed, I think it was Kazakhstan or Bahrain or whatever it was in February. He had, like, 37 points and had, like, nine threes. Like, Toddy can shoot. And then Mitch, he just does everything. He's like, he's the bulldog. Like, I hate playing against Mitch Norton because he's always going to pick up full court. He's a pest on defense. And he's physically so strong as well. So I think I, I I like to like strive for people to you know be great. And I don't like when people talk so negatively about great people. Hey, they just weren't in the right situation. And obviously you're in America at the moment looking at Summer League again. But what was your experience like with Phoenix last Summer League? It was cool. Like I didn't play many minutes the first couple of games. But again, it's just all about understanding. It's my first year. You understand what kind of the environment is like. You know what the what the schedules will be like. So now that I've got a kind of full clear vision of what it's going to be like, now it's about picking the right team and going in there and, and just trying to perform to the best of my ability. But knowing my role on that team and how, how trying to help them win in order to help my career kind of get there and then obviously make a team in the NBA. Who, who was on that Suns roster last year? Did I? I can't remember who they drafted. Who like their star? I don't I mean, think they, they had. No, they had no draft picks last year. So. Phoenix never has like draft picks because I don't know what happened. But um, yeah, they always recruit kind of internationals and kind of go with like an international flavor who can play kind of maybe get a two-way spot or something like that. So, you know, we had Duop Reith and, and JLA from Melbourne United. So it was kind of three of us from Australia. We'd always hang out, go to lunch, go to dinner. It was cool to have them around. And were you, were you dropping any, uh, in some of like, were you dropping any, I guess, little bit of recruiting for the NBL or for the Kings while you're over there, just planting some seeds? Uh, I try to recruit Duop really hard. I think I try <laughs> to get him to kind of be 
that second marquee guy for us um, to come play the five, you know, with Xavier, with Xavier Cooks in the front court. But it's so hard to compete with money elsewhere, like China, Japan, Europe. They just throw so much money in. I think that's where the NBL is going to struggle to get great players to come back because they got a salary cap at whatever it is, one point eight million. Like in Europe or China, they got no salary cap there. They've got money. They're willing to spend it on you. That's for sure. So it's all about making a great career and doing something you love. Uh, we've got a few questions in. If you want to answer, you got time to answer yeah, yeah. those. Yeah, no worries. Not many, just a few, a couple. Um, I actually forgot about this until this question was raised. But Sydney Seekings, what did you say to Matt Hodgson? Oh man. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't say much at all. I just, I think I bumped him in the post and told him, there's no way, even if you caught it, you were going to score on me. He's like, yeah, right. I'm like, man, you might be the softest, like, five men in the league or whatever. And I think he just got his feelings hurt and pushed me once. And then I told him, you you weren't going to do it again. I called him the, I called him a pussy. And then he did it again. <laughs> the next thing you know, Jarrell's flying in, Xavier's flying in. And I think he caught, like, a three or four-game success suspension. Again, like... I don't say anything personal or stuff like that, but again, if it's if it's that easy to get some, under someone else's skin, like, hey man, he got ejected. We ended up winning the game by I think twenty five or something. So, yeah, that's what I said to him. Like, I can't believe I forgot that whole thing happened because I, I, it was just funny. I just thought it was pretty funny from both sides of it. Uh, Tyler wants to know. Uh, would love to hear what you think about the NBL as a potential destination for these young prospects versus college as the league continues to grow? Uh, I think I think the NBL might be the path right now. Um, just because you're in a professional environment and they kind of give you the opportunity to shine. You know, we had Jalen Galloway, my first year as a development player. Now he's kind of in that, you know, rotation for us. We got Jackson McCoy, who was a DP, but he was playing minutes for us. So it's just all about finding, <clears throat> excuse me, the right fit. Because in college... You might think you have the right fit, but again, like it's things can change. A five star can come in and just change the whole game, and you might get you might be going from twenty five minutes to five minutes or not playing at all. So, I think just being in the professional environment, and now, now they say yeah, in college you get paid, but internationals don't get paid if you're in the country. Some people don't know that. So, if you're an international player, like I'm gonna use Jazz Shelley for an example, she doesn't get paid NLI money while she's in the country. But she always goes home between June and July and she can sell merch and she can do all these different kind of advertisements and marketing and that's where she makes a lot of her money. So a lot of people have to keep that in mind. But it's money compared opportunity and what else you can do in your life. So uh, if I'm leaning towards a thing, I'd say go the NBL route just to be part of kind of that environment. And I guess it also helps, I guess, the growth of the excuse me, the next star program as well. Like you've got obviously guys like Josh Giddy and LaMelo, they were getting drafted regardless. But then you look at some of these other guys in next stars, like I, I'm pretty sure uh, Usman Jang went as high as he did because of playing in such a strong league. Hugo Besson got drafted playing in the NBL. Ryan Rupert this year as well. So that's obviously another pretty enticing factor and how that program has grown from Terrence Ferguson being the first guy all those years ago. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think Liam Santa Maria, oh, Liam Santa Maria has done a fantastic job at being like that general manager and kind of being that guy who recruits these players. Like when you look at it, Hurts got an next star in Alexander Saar. Actually played with his brother Olivier, 
at a Phoenix Summer League last year, so I know him really well. The Cairns just got one. Um, obviously, Hakporty is back from his Achilles with United. Uh, uh, that Lithuanian guys with New Zealand. They've got another dude at Illawarra. Like, I think each team might have a next star, and that'll be like the first of its kind. And I love for the NBL to kind of bring back like an all-star game, kind of maybe a next stars versus the NBL or kind of an international flavor versus the Aussies and stuff like that. So it's good for our league. But again, how many Australians can you retain because of that money factor as well? you got to keep that in mind, what I mentioned before. So it's another thing. The NBL is good tracking with the next stars. But again, you got to have a good local talent and US-based talent to keep the league growing. And I forgot, I'm, uh, McCool Maker was the next star during his season, wasn't he? Yeah, MK, yeah. He um, he was our next star. He so there's another fantastic... Washington guy. Yeah, yeah. He was in. A, I think he was on a two-way contract this year. And yeah, I, I haven't really been paying much attention. Like besides, if I didn't really pay much attention during the year, I just watched a lot of NBA. But I always kind of follow like just the Australians, like a Patty Mills or a Joe Ingles, and you kind of just root for the Aussie guys. So I didn't get to follow MK that much because he was in the G League. So yeah. And, and lastly, a pretty soft one. What's your relationship like with Didi? I ain't gonna lie. I haven't heard from him for a while. I think he's just living his married life. Um, yeah, that's my brother right there. That's <laughs> me, Edmano. Uh, yeah, he just he's got he lives a good life. You know, I miss him at Sydney. Uh, I think I grew a good, great connection with him from day one. You know, playing the video games, hanging out, you know, going out to eat, you know, playing, you know, on the court with him and. Yeah, it's just I've still got that great relationship with him, but I think he's enjoying his uh, married life with uh, his wonderful uh, wife, Monique, and yeah, they got married twice, so once in Australia and once in Brazil. So yeah, they're enjoying kind of their honeymoon phase right now. Well, that's all I've got. That's all the viewers, ha- the listeners, viewers have. Uh, DJ, thank you so much for coming on the show. Best of luck with whatever your next step holds, and we look forward to watching it. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you so much to DJ again for being so generous with his time. And remember, if you want to see more episodes like this with really great guests, then the best way to do that is to subscribe to the show. Wherever you get your podcasts, leave it a review and a rating. It really helps us grow. And other than that, thank you so much for listening.